Thank you, Kim, choir and orchestra. I look forward to hearing that, uh, that song at Christmas time. It always blesses me. Have you ever given someone a gift and they didn't seem to receive it or appreciate it? I remember when Eric was in elementary school, the students were exchanging gifts at Christmas. Boys with the boys and girls with the girls, Eric came home from school. And I could tell that he was a little despondent and I said, son, what's wrong? He said, well, we exchanged gifts today, but the boy who received my gift, I don't think liked it. You see, there is a sense in which if we reject a gift that is given, we reject the giver who gives it. Now the Bible tells us that the greatest gift has ever been given was the Messiah, God's gift to us. But from the very beginning, God's gift was rejected. The scripture tells a story with which you are familiar of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem. And when they came to the inn, they were turned away because the innkeeper said that there was no room for them in the inn. So even before he was born, he was rejected. The Jews rejected him as well. The scripture says that he came unto his own and his own received him not. He came as the promised Messiah, the one for whom they looked. And yet the Bible says that he was rejected. They knew him not. And we continue to reject Jesus today. I suppose uh, perhaps the majority of people reject Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one who came to be our Savior. But man is not content simply to reject God's gift. He wants to remove it. He wants to remove the Messiah. And so in many school systems today, there, there are no Christmas carols that are sung. The Christmas story is not told because they wish to remove Jesus from the system. I'm thankful for those teachers, those Christian teachers who use the opportunities that they do have to be a witness for Christ as they can. In the public square, the nativity scenes in many places have been removed because we wish to remove the Lord in businesses. There are many businesses today who no longer proclaim Merry Christmas, but happy holidays. Now, they want the money that is generated from Christmas. They just don't want the Christ whose birth we celebrate. Today, I want to speak to you about the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. If you'll take your Bibles, we look at Paul's account in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 4. Very succinctly, he said, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Have you ever considered what our world would be like without God. Let's say that the Messiah had not come. Then what kind of world would we have? Well, the Bible says that we would be in bondage. You'll notice in verse number three, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. If 
there is no Messiah, the Bible says, then we are in bondage. We are in bondage to the law. Now, the law has a purpose. The law points out our failings. It, it points out to us that we have not measured up, but it does not enable us to meet the standard that it sets. That's what the law does. It sets a standard, but it does not enable us to measure up to the standard that it sets. The law is sort of like a mirror. It reflects what is there. It does not change it. This morning when you got up and began to get ready for church, you looked in the mirror, probably a little frightened at first. But you see, a mirror does not change what is there. It simply reflects what is there. That's what the law does. The law reveals to us our inability or our failure to meet the standard, but it does not enable us to meet the standard. So he says we are then in bondage to the law. We are in bondage to the elemental things. To the things of children, the elemental things would be referring to, to like the ABCs. It would be a picture of someone who learned the ABCs, but they never learned to read or to write. It is the position of a child. Albert Barnes wrote, Here the figure is kept up of the reference to the infant, and the idea is that lessons were taught under the Jewish system to the state of childhood. They were treated as children under tutors and governors. So he says that we are in bondage then to the elemental things. If there is no Messiah, if Christ did not come, then we are in bondage. We are in bondage to the law. We are in bondage to the elemental things. And the Bible says that we are still in our sin. If there is no Messiah, then we are still in our sin. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That is our condition without a Messiah, spiritually speaking. He said that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The cause of death? Trespasses. The word that is used there means to stray down the wrong road. So you have strayed down the wrong road. We have strayed down the wrong road. Sins, the word there is hamartia, which means to miss the mark. So the picture that he gives to us is that without the Messiah, we have strayed down the wrong road and we have missed the mark. And the consequence is death. The consequence of sin is death. Presently, ladies and gentlemen, if you have never been born again, according to the scripture, then you are spiritually dead. You're not feeling poorly. You're dead. That's what the Bible says, that without Jesus Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That speaks of our present condition, but also our eternal condition separated from God. That's man's condition if there is no Messiah. What would man's life be like? What would your life be like if the Messiah had not come? Well, first of all, we would be without purpose. Rick Warren, some years ago, wrote a book titled The Purpose Driven Life. I've known Rick for a long time. 
but he sold 23 million copies of that book. I wonder, how in heaven's name did he do that? Why? I mean, I read the book. We taught the book. It isn't that profound. It's just what you see in the Bible, what you hear most every Sunday. Why, why was that book so popular? Why was it so successful? I believe it's because of this. Because we all need purpose. We need a purpose for life. And without God, then you are simply the result of a random accident. You have no purpose. If there is no God, if there is no Messiah, then our life is without purpose. We're just the result of a random explosion, an accident that took place. And the basic questions of life cannot be answered. The basic questions of life, who am I? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? There are no, no answers to those questions without God. You, you're just here. There, I mean, there's no reason for you to be here. There's just an accident. Here you are. Where are you going? Who knows? What's it all about? You see, you can't answer those questions apart from God. So without the Messiah, then there is no purpose and there is no fulfillment in life. Tom Landry gave his testimony. I love Tom Landry. He coached the uh, Dallas Cowboys for so many years. Back then I was a big Dallas Cowboy fan. Then I got aggravated and stopped being a fan. And now I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan again. But I love Tom Landry. He gave his testimony uh, on the Billy Graham crusade and he said, I was a success as a coach in football. He said, but I found fulfillment when I committed my life to Jesus Christ. See, that's where fulfillment comes. I, I, I wish, I just wish somehow that the Holy Spirit would Speak to your heart today and you would understand that you are never going to find fulfillment in the things of this world. You might have money, you might have success, you might have recognition, all of those things, but you will not find fulfillment apart from Jesus Christ. Fulfillment is in Him and so He had not come, there's no purpose. There is no fulfillment and there is no hope. H.G. Wells said it well when he wrote, man who began in a cave behind a windbreak will end in the disease-soaked ruins of the slum. Well, that is true without God. The world without God, the Bible says that we are in bondage, we are in sin, we are without purpose, we are without fulfillment, and we are without hope. So, God then gave to us the gift. He sent His Son, the Messiah. Now here's His plan, verse number 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son. There are 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. During that time, God was not doing nothing. He was preparing for the promised Messiah who was to come. When Jesus was born, it's really interesting, when Jesus was born, the world was just about perfectly prepared politically for the coming of the Messiah. 
In 333 B.C., Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire. So then, Greek became the universal language. That's the way it was at the time of the coming of Christ. Greek was the universal language. So it's easy now to communicate the gospel because there's one universal language. In 33 B.C., the Romans conquered the Greek. Now then, there is one world government, so there is peace. So it is easy for the gospel to be spread because there is one language, there is peace, and then the Romans built roads, so it is easy to communicate the gospel. So when you look at the coming of Christ, everything was just about perfectly prepared politically, but man was morally depraved. Duncan wrote, it was not man's progress which impelled God to act, but man's need. So when we look at the coming of the Messiah, it's, it's interesting to see that everything was prepared politically for the Messiah to come. There was one language, there was peace, there were roads, all of that was set for the gospel. But man's condition, he was morally depraved when Jesus came. Paul, if you want to read the description, you read Romans chapter 1. And there Paul says that, that man was given over to idolatry. In Romans 1.23, he said they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now that, that, that was... Uh, a description of the idols that man was worshiping at that time. Now, the truth is we're going to worship something. I heard Billy Graham say one time, I've been all over the world and no matter how primitive the civilization might be, they're always worshiping something. Might be a stick, but they worship something. So the Bible says that when Jesus came, that man was morally depraved. He was involved in idolatry. It was humanism. Man was the center of his world and he was controlled by his perverse desires. Read Romans chapter 1 and Paul describes all of that. Man was depraved, spiritually empty, and that brought about a spiritual hunger. I remember Harry Dent who was a member of our church until he went to be with the Lord talking about speaking with a pastor in Romania. And he said the pastor told him that God had used atheistic communism to create a spiritual hunger in Eastern Europe. And so that's how things fell and the gospel was, uh, came to the forefront at, at that time. I, I wonder, and I, of course, it would be my prayer, and I'm sure that it would probably be your prayer as well. When I look at the depravity of our own society, sometimes I am discouraged by it. At other times, I am wondering, is God bringing us to a place where we are so morally and spiritually depraved that there begins to be a spiritual hunger in us because of the emptiness and that revival will come? Now, that's my prayer. That's what I pray for. When I, when I see everything that is happening in our society, the moral depravity, the sin, all of that, is God going to use that? That we recognize our spiritual emptiness and we desire a move of God.
God's plan was in the fullness of time when everything was right, He sent forth His Son. Now in verse number 4 you look again, we see the person when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. There's always been a problem with the identity of Jesus. Who is He? There still is today. Who is Jesus? When He came to Nazareth where He grew up, and the townspeople saw him, they said, um, is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph boy? And here was the problem that they had. They had watched him grow up. He was the carpenter's son, Joseph's boy. And yet they had heard him speak. They heard the truth. They saw the depth. They had heard about the miracles. This can't be the carpenter's son, can it? And so there was a problem with his identity concerning his own hometown. Who is this? Isn't that the carpenter's son? And then on one occasion Jesus was meeting with his his disciples and, and he asked, who do men say that I am? You know the thing that's really interesting about that is that uh, when we go to Israel we always uh, go to Caesarea Philippi. That's where Jesus asked the question. The reason that's important is because that was the heart of idolatry, the worship of Pan. And so Jesus took them right into the heart of idolatry. And he asked the question, who do men say that I am? And as they responded to Jesus' question, they said, well, they think that you're one of the prophets. The people think you're one of the prophets. The thing that is of interest to me is that there has always been a question concerning the identity of Jesus and yet everyone recognizes that he is special. When Jesus came to Nicodemus by night, Nicodemus said in John chapter 3 verse number 2, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. Well that's pretty impressive, we know that you have come from God. As a teacher, they knew that he was a teacher. For no one can do these signs, miracles, no one can do these miracles, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. So Nicodemus wasn't exactly sure who Jesus was, but he knew he was special. And perhaps that's where you are today. I hear people today say, well, I think that he's a great teacher. Or I think that he was a wonderful philosopher, or whatever he is. So even those who do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah understand that he is special And yet the Bible says that he was divine. God sent forth his son, deity. I guess the problem we have is also his humanity. Deity and humanity, born of a woman. So he is God's son, made of a woman. And the Bible says that he was born under the law. The giver of the law became subject to the law. So Jesus put himself under the law. He said, I didn't come to, I didn't come to do away with the law, to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law, which he did. Well, what was his purpose for coming? Verse number five, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So why did Jesus come? Well, I would say, first of all, because of revelation to reveal God to us. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Being finite, we have difficulty understanding or relating to infinite, an infinite God. And so the Bible says, when the, when the scripture says, He is the image of God. In the vernacular, we would say, He is the spitting image of His daddy. 
You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. See, I can understand Jesus because if someone said he is God with skin on. So I can understand that I can relate, I can relate to Jesus. He came to reveal the Father to us. He came to redeem mankind. First of all, from legalism. Look over chapter 3, verse number 24. He says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so the Bible says the law then is our tutor. A tutor was a slave who had the responsibility to take the child to school and back again safely. So the tutor then was the person who had the responsibility of the family to take the child safely to school and then take the child safely back home. He says that's what the law is. The law has the responsibility of taking us safely to the Father, but we no longer need a tutor. When Jesus came, we no longer need a tutor. So we have been redeemed from legalism, they were redeemed from fatalism. The people in the time of Scripture were very uh, superstitious. They looked to the stars in some of Paul's letters. He is referring to that, though you may not be aware of that. He was referring to the superstition of the stars. And, and uh, what he is saying here is that man's destiny is not determined by the stars. It's determined by the sun. It's not the stars that determine your destiny. It is the Son of God. So there's revelation, redemption, and adoption. Verse number 5. In order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So through Jesus then we are adopted into the family. And the thing about adoption is that it could not be undone. I'm adopted into the family, cannot be undone. R.T. Kendall wrote about attending an adoption ceremony in Florida. He said, the judge said, if I sign my name to this document, it means that this child is yours. Legally yours as though he were your natural son. You cannot turn him back once I sign my name to this document. We have been adopted into the family of God. What does that mean? Well, it means I have a new father. I have a heavenly father, our father who art in heaven. So when I was adopted into the family of God, now then I have a new father. I have a heavenly father. I have a new spirit in verse number six, because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit into your hearts. I have a new position in verse number 7. You're no longer a slave but a son. I'm no longer a slave but I'm a son of God. And I have a new future. Heaven is my home. So God, God sent to his gift, the Messiah, to this world. Now then, what is the world with God? Look at verse number 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. I have his presence into our hearts, into our hearts. When I'm adopted into the family of God, the Holy Spirit comes into my heart, into our hearts. He is there to teach us. He's there to teach you how you're supposed to live. If you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. He is there to teach you. 
He is there to convict you of sin. Linda said, if someone is a Christian and does wrong, they have to know and feel convicted. Folks, let me tell you, if you are a child of God adopted into the family of God, you cannot sin successfully. Now, you can sin, but you can't sin successfully. Because the Spirit of God convicts us. He guides us in the way that He wants us to go. And He empowers us to live the Christian life. Because greater is he who is within than he who is of the world. Now we see our position in verse number 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. He says we are sons not servants. If you've been born again you're a child of God not a servant. You remember the story of the prodigal son my favorite story in the Bible. When he came to his senses the Bible says he decided he was going to go back to the father. And he said I'll go back and say Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And the father said, welcome home, son. Welcome home. We are sons, not servants. We are free, not in bondage. In chapter 5, verse number 1, he says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And then you'll notice in verse number 7, he says, And if we are sons, then an heir through God. I'm an heir of God. You're an heir of God if you know the Lord. We're an heir of His righteousness. Well, that's one of the things that means so much to me because I'm not righteous. I'm not a righteous person. I pray, you know, the Bible, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that His righteousness is imputed to my account. The word imputed is a bookkeeping term. And it means that the righteousness of Jesus is deposited in my account and now then I am counted righteous because of what he put in my account. I'm not righteous but his righteousness is in my account. And so I'm righteous through him. I'm an heir of a Christian family. I'm the brother to the Apostle Paul, Simon Peter, Nathaniel, to you because of our relationship to God the Father and heir of heaven. So let me conclude. Jesus is the gift that God sent. Well, what do you do with that gift? What will you do with the gift of God? You can accept it. You can accept Jesus and be adopted into the family of God, born again. You can accept it. You can reject it. Nope, don't want to have anything to do with it. I want to live my own life. I think I have a better plan. Don't want him. You can delay. That's dangerous. That's what Felix did. He said, uh, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. And there's no indication that he ever did. But you see, here's the thing that's important. Your choice has consequences. What are you going to do with Jesus? Your choice has consequences. There is heaven for those who receive him, and there is hell for those who reject him. So do you choose to live your life with God or apart from God? That's your choice. That's your decision. The gift is presented. Now what will you do with it? Our Father in God, I pray that as we consider your grace and your mercy and the Lord Jesus who came for those who have never received the gift of God, that today they would. Bless this time in Christ's name I pray, amen. We extend an invitation if you're 
If you have never received Christ, then I, I pray that you will today receive Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors open. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. The choir sings. As they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do. Let me encourage you to uh, join with us this evening. We have Carol's Candlelight Communion at 6 o'clock. Beautiful service. And uh, always have a, a wonderful attendance to it because it just sort of sets things whenever we have the Lord's Supper and then the candlelight and so forth. It's a beautiful service, and I hope you will be here. Now, last Sunday, I've already been reminded of this. I told you last Sunday that, you know, we were talking about the finances and how much is needed as we come to the end of the year. I said, it's my tendency to pray and worry. And uh, as I was praying and worrying, the, the Lord had, I think, spoke to my heart and said, why don't, you, why don't you pray and trust? And so I've been doing that. I am so excited about this big hole that we have gotten into, and we're going to be out of it at the end of the year. I mean, I am, I am so blessed by your faithfulness, your support. Everyone, I want you, everyone, to just go to the Lord. God, what, you, what do you want me to do? And do it. And we are going to come out in the black at the end of the year. And I, I'm already rejoicing and thanking the Lord for that. It's going to be a wonderful time, and I praise the Lord for his faithfulness. Now then, it is time for our uh, church conference. We have two a year. This is, uh, this is the end of the year.